We'd like to welcome you to another edition of The Jazz Show on CITR FM 101.9 on your radio dial or on your computer, CITR.ca. My name is Gavin Walker, and we're going to uh, do our jazz feature as we do right at the beginning of the show. There's lots of music to play for the duration and some uh, quite a wonderful jazz feature. Part two of our back-to-school entertainment and educational jazz feature. And this is, um, again, something we do every year at this time. And last week, of course, we heard from the redoubtable alto saxophonist Julian Cannonball Adderley giving us um, a brief history of jazz music, basically an overview but um, still valid, and uh, at least it it gives you a historical perspective of where the music is coming from. Of course, um, these kind of recordings are limited by the time they're recorded, and and Cannonball's one was recorded in in 1960, so it kind of left off there, and of course there's a lot of history in jazz music from 1960 to the present day that uh, obviously wasn't uh, discussed, but... Uh, from a historical perspective, um, the recording, of course, is still valid. This recording we're going to hear this evening is by the great American maestro, Leonard Bernstein. And Leonard is going to talk about not so much a history of jazz, but what it is and what it isn't. And those of you that have heard this recording many times, it was done in the 50s, uh, so there's some funny uh, references in, in, in here that, you, that uh, I won't tell you about now, but when you hear them, I'm sure they'll, they'll draw a smile um, uh, <laughs> because they are, they are kind of dated references. And, and, and there's, uh, he makes references to uh, certain dances, too, which, um, uh, because jazz music was so often played for dancers. And he talks about uh, the type of dancing that was done. We all know the jitterbug, but then how many people know about the Peabody? Uh, you know, different different types of dances that were done back then. Anyway, those kind of dated references um, are, are more humorous than anything else at this point. But what he talks about, again, is what is jazz and what isn't. And um, I think this gives a very good overview. And, of course, the, a lot of the performers on here... Uh, are jazz greats, people like um, uh, Miles Davis, uh, who you'll hear later, John Coltrane, uh, you'll hear du- um, Louis Armstrong, you'll hear Duke Ellington, uh, and and so many people, Coleman Hawkins, and uh, um, Bernstein himself, of course, uh, will deliver some of the uh, examples. Uh, he'll be playing the piano and and, uh, and doing what he does. And that is the first part, what is jazz and what isn't. And the second part, he gets into taking apart uh, a popular song, which, of course, is used and is still used today as the basis for a lot of jazz improvisation and how the popular song is built and then all kinds of different interpretations of that song by different musicians and from different eras and all that kind of stuff. 
So it's, it is an interesting recording, and it's still very valid, and it's a lot of fun to listen to, and it's going to be our jazz feature, and it's going to begin right now. So here, then, is What is Jazz by Maestro Leonard Bernstein. Now anyone hearing this music, anyone on any civilized part of this earth, east or west, pole to pole, would immediately say, that is jazz. We are going to try to investigate jazz, not through the usual historical approach of up the river from New Orleans, etc., which has become all too familiar, but through approaching the music itself. We are going to examine the musical innards of jazz to find out, once and for all, what it is that sets it apart from all other music. Jazz is a very big word. It covers a multitude of sounds, all the way from the earliest blues. Oh, I ain't got no mammy now. Oh, I ain't got no mammy now. To Dixieland bands. <laughs> Charleston bands, to swing bands, to boogie woogie, to crazy bop. to mambo and much more it is all jazz and I love it all I love it because it's an original kind of emotional expression in that it is never wholly sad or wholly happy. Even the blues has a robustness and a hard-boiled quality that never lets it become sticky sentimental, no matter how self-pitying the words are. And on the other hand, the gayest, wildest jazz always seems to have some hint of pain in it. Listen to this trumpet and see what I mean. That is what intrigues me about jazz. It's unique, a form of expression all its own. Then I love it for its humor. It really plays with notes. We always speak of playing music. We play Brahms, we play Bach. It's a term perhaps more properly applied to tennis. 
But jazz is real play. It fools around with notes, so to speak. It has fun with them. It is therefore entertainment in its truest sense. But I find I have to defend jazz to those, for instance, who say it is low class. But then all music has low class origins since it comes from folk music, which is necessarily earthy. After all, Haydn minuets are only a refinement of simple, rustic German dances, and so are Beethoven scherzos. An aria in a Verdi opera can often be traced back to the most basic Neapolitan fisherman. Besides, there has always been a certain shadow of indignity around music, particularly around the players of music. I suppose it is due to the fact that historically, players of music seem to lack the dignity of composers of music. This is especially true of jazz, which is almost completely a player's art, depending as it does on improvisation rather than on composition. This means that the player of jazz is himself the real composer, which gives him a creative and therefore more dignified status. But then there are those who argue that jazz is loud. Well, so are Sousa marches, and we don't hear complaints about them. Besides, it's not always loud. It is very often extremely delicate, in fact. Perhaps this objection stems from the irremediable situation of what is, after all, a kind of brass band playing in a room too small for it. But that is not the fault of jazz itself. However, the main argument against jazz has always been that it is not art. I think it is art, and a very special one. But before we can argue about whether it is or not, we must know what it is. And so I propose to share with you some of the things I know and love about jazz. Let's take that blues we heard before and find out what it's made of. I woke up this morning with an awful aching head. I woke up this morning with a... Now, what are the elements that make that jazz? Well, first of all, there is the element of melody. Western music in general is based, melodically speaking, on scales. Major, minor, and some others. But there is a special scale for jazz, which is a variation of the regular major scale you all practiced as kids. In jazz, this scale gets modified three different times. The third note gets lowered from this to this. The fifth note gets lowered from this to this. And the seventh note gets lowered from this to this. Those three changed notes are referred to as blue notes. So instead of a phrase, which ordinarily would go something like this, which is not particularly jazzy, we would get, using blue notes, this phrase, which begins to show a jazz quality. But this so-called jazz scale is used only melodically. In the harmony underneath, we still use our old unflatted notes, and that causes a dissonance to happen between the tune and the chords. You hear that dissonance? But this very dissonance has a true jazz sound. Jazz pianists are always using those two dissonant notes together, and there's a reason for it. 
they are really searching for a note that isn't there at all, but one which lies somewhere between the two notes, between this and this. And the note is called a quarter tone. The quarter tone comes straight from Africa, which is the cradle of jazz, and where quarter tones are everyday stuff. We can produce one on a wind instrument or a stringed instrument or with the voice, but on the piano we have to approximate it by playing together the two notes on each side of it. The real note is somewhere in that crack between them. Now let's see if I can sing you a quarter tone, if you will forgive my horrid voice. Here is an African Swahili tune I once heard. The last note of it will be a quarter tone. Now that last note sounds as if it's terribly out of tune, but actually it is a real note in another musical language. In jazz, it is right at home. Now, just to show how important these so-called blue notes are to jazz, let's hear that same blues played without them, using only the plain white notes of the major scale. There is something missing, isn't there? It just isn't jazz. But even more important than melody in jazz is the element of rhythm. Rhythm is the first thing you associate with the word jazz, after all. There are two aspects to this point, the first being the beat. The beat is what you hear when the drummer's foot is beating the bass drum, or when the bass player is plucking his bass, or even when the pianist is kicking the pedal with his foot. All this is elementary. The beat goes on from beginning to the end of any number, two or four of them to a bar, never changing in tempo or in meter. This is the heartbeat, so to speak, of jazz. But more involved and more interesting is the rhythm going on over the beat, rhythmic figures which depend on something called syncopation, a word you have certainly heard, but maybe were never quite sure of. A good way to understand syncopation might be to think of a heartbeat that goes along steadily and at a moment of shock misses a beat. It is that much of a physical reaction. Technically, syncopation means either the removal of an accent where you expect one or the placing of an accent where you least expect one. In either case, there is the element of surprise and shock. The body responds to this shock either by compensating for the missing accent or by reacting to the unexpected one. Now, where do we expect accents? Always on the first beat of a bar, on the downbeat. If there are two beats in a bar, one is going to be strong and two is going to be weak, exactly as in marching. Left, right, left, right, left, right. Even if there are four beats in a bar, it is still like marching, because although we all have only two legs, the sergeant still counts out in four. Two, three, four. Hop, two, three, four. There is always that natural accent on one. Take it away, and there is a simple syncopation. 
One, two, three, four. Two, three, four. Two, three, four. You see that that missing accent on the first beat evokes a body response. Now the other way to make a syncopation is exactly the reverse. Put an accent on a weak beat, the second or the fourth, where it does not belong. Like this. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. This is what we all do when we listen to jazz, clapping our hands or snapping our fingers on the offbeat. One, two, three, four. Now those are the basic facts of syncopation, and now we can understand its subtler aspects. Between one beat and another, there lie shorter and even weaker beats, and when these get accents, the shock is correspondingly greater, since the weaker the beat you accentuate, the greater the surprise. Let's take eight of these fast beats in a bar. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. The normal accent would fall on one and five. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Now instead, let's put a big accent on a real weak one, which is the fourth. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 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 Okay, boys, thank you. As you see, we got a pure rumba rhythm simply by accentuating the weak fourth beat. Of course, the strongest syncopation of all would obviously be obtained by doing both things at once putting an accent on a weak beat and taking away the accent from the strong. So now we will do this double operation, put a wallop on the weak fourth beat and remove the strong fifth beat entirely. And we get one, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, one, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, one, two, three, four. It begins to sound like the Congo, doesn't it? Well, now that you've heard what syncopation is like, let's see what that same blues we heard before would sound like without it. I think you'll miss that essential element, the very life of jazz. Sounds square, doesn't it? Well, that takes care of two very important elements, melody and rhythm. But jazz would not be jazz without its special tonal colors, the actual sound values you hear. These colors are many, but they mostly stem from the quality of the Negro singing voice. For instance, when Louis Armstrong plays his trumpet, he is only doing another version of his own voice. Listen to an Armstrong record like I can't give you anything but love, and compare the trumpet solo with the vocal solo. You can't miss the fact that they're by the same fellow. I can't give you anything but love, baby. That's the only thing I'm letting over, baby. Dream my while. Now the trumpet version. But the Negro voice has engendered other imitations, too. 
The saxophone is in itself a kind of imitation of it, breathy, a little hoarse, with a vibrato or tremor in it. Just to show you what a vibrato is, let's hear that sax again without one. Then there are all the different growls and rasps we get by putting mutes on the horns. Here, for example, is a trumpet with a cup mute. And now with a wah-wah mute. And now listen to a trombone with a plunger mute. There are other tonal colors that derive from Afro-Cuban sources, like the bongo drums, the maracas, the Cuban cowbell, and all the others. Then there are the colors that have an oriental flavor, the vibraphone, various symbols, and so on. All these special colorations make their contribution to the total quality of jazz. You have certainly all heard jazz tunes played straight by non-jazz orchestras and wondered what was missing. There certainly is something missing, the coloration. Let's now hear that same blues sung straight that is, without any jazz shading at all. Not the real thing, is it? There is one more jazz element, one which may surprise some of you who think jazz is not an art. I refer to form. Did you know, for example, that the blues is a classical form? Most people use the word blues to mean any song that is blue or torchy or low down or breast beating, like Stormy Weather, for example. But Stormy Weather is not a blues and neither is Moanin' Low nor The Man I Love nor even The Birth of the Blues. They are all popular songs. The blues is basically a strict poetic form combined with music. It is based on a rhymed couplet with the first line repeated. For example, Billie Holiday sings, My man don't love me, treats me awful mean. Oh, he's the lowest man I've ever seen. But when she sings it, she repeats the first line. So it goes, My man don't love me, treats me awful mean. I said, my man don't love me, treats me awful mean. Oh, he's the lowest man that I've ever seen. That is one stanza of blues. A full blues is nothing more than a succession of such stanzas for as long as the singer wishes. Did you notice that the blues couplet is, of all things, in iambic pentameter? 
My man don't love me, treats me awful mean. Oh, he's the lowest man I've ever seen. This is about as classic as one can get. It means that you can take any rhymed couplet in iambic pentameter, from Shakespeare, for example, and make a perfect Macbeth blues. I will not be afraid of death and bane till Burnham Forest come to Dunsinane. It makes a lovely blues. I will not be afraid of death or bane. I said I will not be afraid of death or bane. Till Burnham Forest come to Dunsinane. Now, if you've been very attentive, you've noticed that each of those three lines got four bars apiece, making in all a 12-bar stanza. But the voice itself sang only about half of each four-bar line. I will not be afraid of death and vain, and the rest was filled up by the orchestra. This filling up is called a break. And here in the break, we have the origin of the instrument imitating the voice, the very soil in which jazz grows. Perhaps the essential sound of jazz is Louis Armstrong improvising the breaks in a blues sung by Bessie Smith. From this kind of voice imitation, all instrumental improvising has since developed. Listen to that sound. Notice the instrument that is accompanying the singer. It is a harmonium, that wheezy little excuse for an organ which we all associate with hymn tunes. But far from being out of place in the blues, this instrument is especially appropriate, since the chords in the blues must always be exactly the same three chords we all know from hymn tunes. These chords must always remain in a strict classical pattern, pure and simple. Try to vary them and the blues quality flies out the window. Well, there you have it. Melody, rhythm, tone color, form, harmony. In each department, there are special features that make jazz instead of just music. Let's now put them all together and hear a full-blown, all-out, happy blues. Oh, did you know that blues could be happy? Just listen.
By this time, I've probably given you the impression that jazz is nothing but blues. Not at all. I've only used the blues to investigate jazz because it embodies the various elements of jazz in so clear and pure a way. But the rest of jazz is concerned with applying these same elements to something called the popular song. The popular song, too, is a form and has certain strict patterns. Popular songs are in either two-part or three-part form. By far the most numerous are in the three-part. You all know this form, of course, from hearing it so much. It is simple as pie. Anyone can write one. Take Sweet Sue, for instance. All you need, really, is the first eight bars, which in the trade are called the front strain. Now the song is practically written, since the whole thing will be only 32 bars long, four groups of eight bars apiece. Now the second eight is the same exactly as the first. Making 16 bars and we're already half finished. Now the next eight bars, which is called the release, or the bridge, or just simply the middle part. This must be different music, but it doesn't matter if it's very good or not, since most people don't remember it too well anyway. And then the same old front strain all over again. And it's finished. 32 bars and a classic forever. Easy, isn't it? But Sweet Sue is still not jazz. A popular song doesn't become jazz until it is improvised on. And there you have the real core of all jazz, improvisation. Remember I said that jazz was a player's art rather than a composer's? Well, this is the key to the whole problem. It is the player who, by improvising, makes jazz. He uses the popular song as a kind of dummy to hang his notes on. He dresses it up in his own way, and it comes out an original. So the pop tune, in acquiring a new dress, changes its personality completely, like many people who behave one way in blue jeans and in a wholly different way in dinner clothes. Some of you may object to this dressing up, you who say, let me hear the melody and not all this embroidery. But until you accept this principle of improvisation, you will never accept or understand jazz itself. What does improvising mean? It means that you take a tune, keep it in mind with its harmony and all, and then, as they used to say, just go to town or make it up as you go along. You go to town by adding ornaments and figurations or by making real old-fashioned variations, just as Mozart and Beethoven did. Let me show you a little of how Mozart did it, and then you may understand better how Errol Garner does it. Mozart took a well-known nursery rhyme, which he knew as A vous direz je maman, and which we know as Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, or as a way of singing the alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, and so on. Now, Mozart makes a series of variations on this tune. One of them begins... Then another. Another one begins.
and yet another. They are all different pieces, yet they are all in one way or another that same tune. The jazz musician does exactly the same thing. There are infinite possible versions of Sweet Sue, for example. The clarinet player might improvise one chorus of it this way. He could have done that in any number of ways, and if I asked him to do it again tomorrow morning, it would come out a whole other piece. But it would still be Sweet Sue, and it would still be jazz. In fact, let's ask him to try it again and see how different it is. Now we come to the most exciting part of jazz, for me at any rate, simultaneous improvising. This happens when two or more musicians improvise on the same tune at the same time. Neither one knows exactly what the other is going to do, but they listen to each other and pick up phrases from each other and sort of talk together. What ties them together is the chords, the harmony of Sweet Sue. Over this harmony, they play two different melodic lines at the same time, which in musical terms makes a kind of accidental counterpoint. This is the germ of what is called the jam session. Now the trumpet is going to join with the clarinet in a double improvisation on Sweet Sue and see if you can distinguish the two melodic lines. business of improvising together gave rise to the style called Dixieland, which is constantly having a big revival. One of the most exhilarating sounds in all music is that of a Dixieland band blaring out its final chorus all stops out with everyone improvising together. Here is that Dixieland chorus of Sweet Sue. see how exciting this can be. But jazz is not all improvisation, not by a long shot. Much of it gets written down, and it is then called an arrangement. The great days of arrangements were the 30s, 
when big startling swing arrangements were showing off the virtuosity of the great bands like Casaloma, Benny Goodman, Artie Shaw, the Dorsey Brothers, and so on. Now jazz is hard to write down. There is no way of notating exactly those quarter tones we talked about, nor the various smears and growls and subtle intonations. Even the rhythms can only be approximated in notation, so that much of the jazz quality is left to the instincts of the player who is reading the music. Still, it does work, because the instincts of those players are so deep and genuine. Let's listen to a good solid swing arrangement of a chorus of Sweet Sue, as we might have heard it back in 1938. Now remember, this arrangement was for dancing. In 1938, we were all dancing, and that brings up the most important point of all. Nobody seems to dance to jazz very much anymore, except for mambo lovers, and they are limited to those who are athletic enough to do it. What has happened to dancing? We used to have a new dance practically every month. The Lindy Hop, the Shag, the Peabody, the Big Apple, Boogie, Susie Q. Now we have only dances you have to take lessons to do. What does this mean? Simply that the emphasis is on listening these days instead of on singing and dancing. This change had to happen. For one thing, the tremendous development of the recording industry has taught us to listen in a way we never did before. But even more important, with the advent of more complicated jazz like swing and boogie-woogie and bop, our interest has shifted to the music itself and to the virtuosity of its performance. That is, we are interested in what notes are being played, how well, how fast, and with what originality. You can't listen to bop intelligently and dance too, murmuring sweet nothings into your partner's ear. You have to listen as hard as you can to hear what's happening. So in a way, jazz has begun to be a kind of chamber music, an advanced, sophisticated art mainly for listening, full of influences of Bartok and Stravinsky, and very, very serious. Let's listen for a moment to this kind of arrangement of our old friend Sweet Sue. Now, whether you call that weird piece cool or crazy or futuristic or modernistic or whatever, the fact is that it is bordering on serious concert music. The arrangement begins to be a composition. Take away the beat, and you might not even know it's jazz at all. In fact, let's hear a little of it without the beat and see. <laughs> Thank you. 
what we are hearing might perfectly well be a concert piece. Why is it jazz? Because it is played by jazz men on jazz instruments and because it has its roots in the soil of jazz and not of Bach. I think the key word to all this is the word cool. It means what it implies. Jazz used to advertise itself as hot. Now the heat is off. The jazz player has become a highly serious person. He may even be an intellectual. He tends to wear Ivy League clothes, have a crew cut, or wear horn-rimmed glasses. He may have studied music at a conservatory or a university. This was unthinkable in the old days. Our new jazz man plays more quietly with greater concentration on musical values, on tone quality, technique. He knows Bartok and Stravinsky, and his music shows it. He tends to avoid big, flashy endings. The music just stops when it is over. As he has become cool, so have his listeners. They don't dance. They listen respectfully as if to chamber music and applaud politely at the end. At jazz nightclubs all over the world, you find audiences who do not necessarily have a drink in their hands and who do not beat out the rhythm and carry on as we did when I was a boy. It is all rather cool and surprisingly controlled, considering that jazz is essentially an emotional experience. Where does this lead us in our investigation? To some pretty startling conclusions. There are those who conclude from all this that here in the new jazz is the real beginning of serious American music, that at last the American composer has his own expression. Of course, when they say this, they are intimating that all American symphonic works up to now are nothing but personalized imitations of the European symphonic tradition from Mozart to Mahler. Sometimes, I must say, I think they have a point. At any rate, we can be sure of one thing that the line between serious music and jazz grows less and less clear. We have serious composers writing in the jazz idiom, and we have jazz musicians becoming serious composers. Perhaps we've stumbled on a theory. But theory or no theory, jazz goes on, finding new paths, sometimes reviving old styles, but in either case, looking for freshness. In any art that is really vital and searching, splits are bound to develop arguments arise and factions form. Just as in painting, the non-objectivists are at sword's point with the representationalists, and in poetry, the imagists declaim against the surrealists. So in jazz music, we have a major battle between the traditionalists and the progressives. These latter are the ones who are trying hardest to get away from the patterns of half a century, experimenting with new sonorities, using note relationships that are not common to the old jazz, and in general, trying to keep jazz alive and interesting by broadening its scope. Let us see if we can feel the essential difference between the two schools by listening to a progressive jam session on, you guessed it, Sweet Sue. This style will embody all the elements we have discussed as distinguishing jazz from all other music, but will use them in a new and different way.
Well, we've heard jazz as it comes from the past, and we've had a sample of what might turn out to be the future of jazz. What we're hearing now is jazz in the present tense, still a fresh and vital art with a solid past and an exciting future. And that is our jazz feature this evening. What is jazz? Narrated by Maestro Leonard Bernstein. Obvious, his obvious love for the music and knowledge of how it's uh, all put together came uh, across on this uh, classic album, which was, of course, recorded in the mid-50s. So um, it left off um, at the um, Miles Davis Quintet that we heard the piece of music we heard right at the end, and that was uh, Miles Davis's first great quintet. We're going to hear a little more from um, that recording session uh, right after a, a brief break, but uh, I certainly hope you enjoyed the um, Leonard Bernstein um, look at what is jazz and what isn't jazz. And uh, this recording stands as a, as I said, a classic, and it's um, a tradition on this particular show that we do uh, two recordings every year. At this time in September, the back to school, back to work idea, and um, educational and um, entertaining, I hope. And um, you can always learn something from these uh, recordings, even though they were done a long time ago. And, of course, it's always humorous to uh, uh, hear some of the references which are, are dated, um, including uh, you know, jazz musicians could be intellectuals. They wear horn rim glasses <laughs> and have crew cuts. <laughs> well, uh, that's a possibility, you know, but it is kind of a, a little bit of a cliche. But the idea, of course, is that uh, musicians are... are uh, jazz musicians are much um, more educated um, musically. They've, they have gone to college usually and, and uh, all, all that kind of stuff, uh, rather than uh, in the early days when uh, most of the musicians were basically self-taught. But music is self-taught anyway. Uh, you, you get a guidance from a teacher, and then, and then you've got to put in hours, hours, years, years, um, eternity, practicing because there's never an end to it and that's the beauty of music and that's why uh, musicians are very dedicated people and uh, uh, stay with their art for better or for worse in uh, in many cases anyway um, I hope you enjoyed this uh, recording those of you that have uh, heard it before well you can always glean something new from it and those of you that have never heard it I hope you enjoyed it maestro Leonard Bernstein and, of course, uh, the all-star cast in there, all kinds of great musicians, Louis Armstrong, Coleman Hawkins, Phil Woods, Miles Davis, etc., etc. All right, you are listening to The Jazz Show on CITR-FM 101.9 or on your computer. My name's Gavin Walker, and we'll be right back with um, some more music by that great first quintet, and I'll tell you a little story about how these recordings came about after uh, we hear these 
important messages. And we'll be right back. Are you interested in indigenous issues? Do you get ticked off with ongoing colonization? Do you have something to say? Or do you want to learn more? We have just the thing. Join UBC's first ever Indigenous Radio Collective at CITR Radio, Unceded Musqueam Territories. Our show, Unceded Airwaves, airs every Monday from 11 to 12, and we meet from 12 to 1 to plan our upcoming shows. We're interested in content covering various things from film to literature, current day politics, history, whatever you want to talk about, we're into it. Everyone welcome, Indigenous and non-Indigenous. magic and change in the realm of Discordia. Discorder's format has once again transformed with the changing of seasons and years. September's Discorder magazine. Experience it anew. Is there any way that you can be graceful when Featuring cover artist Craftition, articles on Wish Kicker, Art Deco, and Hick, album reviews for Ramsey and Japanese Girls, and live show reviews of Art Swells, Space Melt, and more. Experience the transformation. Pick up a copy of Discorder at local record stores, venues, and more. Thank you to Discorder's advertisers. Vinyl Records, Recruit in Canada, Rickshaw, Fringe, Zipcar, Astoria, AMS, Don't Argue, Hastings Crossing, BIA, Live Band, The Rio, Shindig, Timber, Neptune, Viv, Unip Hit, Dead Offensive, Flemish Eye, Volunteer Media. Hold us all together in one as the winter comes. You're listening to CITR 101.9. Broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus, located on the traditional, unceded, Coast Salish territory of the Hunkamenum-speaking Musqueam people. Miles Davis was the last artist on our jazz feature. Um, performing with his first great quintet. And, of course, the people involved in that band were John Coltrane, just beginning his career on tenor saxophone, the great Red Garland on piano, Paul Chambers on bass, who was still a teenager back um, then when these recordings were made, and the great Philly Joe Jones on drums. And, of course, uh, Garland, Chambers, and Jones made uh, up one of the uh, most... Um, prominent jazz rhythm sections ever and um, the way these uh, gentlemen played. Now, Miles Davis was under contract with uh, Prestige Records and Columbia had already um, George Avakian, who was heading Columbia Records, very aware producer, uh, had um, talked to Miles and said we're interested in uh, your star is on the rise. You have a permanent band now, um, and you've cleaned up your act. Uh, Miles went through a, a, a terrible uh, period uh, in the 50s with drug addiction and all that kind of stuff. And um, Miles, of course, performed at the Newport Jazz Festival and, and uh, stunned everybody with his virtuosity and, and um, his playing. 
And um, George Avakian said, well, you you know, we want to sign you to Columbia Records. And Miles said, well, I have a commitment to Prestige Records. And, and um, George said, well, finish that off. So actually, Miles did a couple of marathon recording sessions with the quintet for Prestige. But in the meantime, uh, he also recorded for Columbia Records. And, of course, the deal was that uh, until his Prestige contract was complete at the end of 1956, these records, uh, Columbia Records, would never be put out, obviously because they, they didn't want to get a, into a big lawsuit thing. But Miles did record for them. And we're going to hear the first um, four tracks that Miles recorded for Columbia Records in October of 1956. One of them became quite prominent because it was issued on a classic album. The others are a little more obscure, and they came out years and years and years later. But these are the first four tunes that this incredible band uh, recorded. We're going to start with a um, Charlie Parker composition that Miles played much faster than the original Charlie Parker uh, and, uh, version, and this one is called Alucha, and uh, the tune is, is a, a wonderful composition written by Charlie Parker. The second tune is a tune that actually features uh, John Coltrane's uh, tenor saxophone, and it is um, a piece that was written by John Lewis and Dizzy Gillespie and called The Two Bass Hit. Tune number three was um, one of the first important compositions by alto saxophonist Jackie McLean, and he wrote this for his then baby daughter, Melanie, and of course he called the tune Little Melanie, and it's a very interesting tune. It's very kind of abstract and uh, perfectly suited for this band. And the final tune is uh, Miles Davis' Bud Powell uh, co-composition. It's called Budo. And uh, you'll hear this um, exciting band at its best. And we begin once again, Miles Davis on trumpet, John Coltrane, tenor saxophone, Red Garland, piano, and... Paul Chambers on bass, and Philly Joe Jones on drums. And we begin with the Charlie Parker composition, Alucha. <laughs> Thank you. 
First great Miles Davis quintet. Actually, you know, um, I was mistaken. I think in the in- introduction I was talking about the year 1956. Actually, this was recorded October 1955, and they were indeed the very first 
studio recordings by this new band. Um, Miles recorded an album a month later for their um, first, the first album that they did for Prestige Records. And then the following year, they did those marathon sessions uh, in May and October of 56 for, uh, for Prestige and that ended Miles' contract with, uh, with Prestige Records. So he was still under contract with Prestige, and he recorded these sort of secretively for Columbia Records. But uh, the agreement was that uh, none of this stuff would be released until his Prestige contract was finished because uh, they wanted to avoid a lawsuit <laughs> and uh, all that kind of stuff. Anyway... Uh, regardless, these were the very first studio recordings by the new Miles Davis quintet, which became his first great quintet. Miles Davis on trumpet, John Coltrane on tenor saxophone, Red Garland on piano, Paul Chambers on bass, and Philly Joe Jones on drums. And we heard four tunes uh, from this first recording session, including uh, the first tune, was a Charlie Parker composition called Alucha. And then we heard a feature for John Coltrane, which featured the whole band, but uh, Coltrane took the solo on it. And it uh, was a John Lewis Dizzy Gillespie composition called Two Bass Hit, which goes back to the mid-40s. Then a brand-new composition by Jackie McLean, his first uh, significant composition that he wrote for his little daughter, and it's called Little Melanie. And, of course, it had a kind of a mysterious uh, sort of chord structure and was an interesting enough for Miles interesting enough for Miles Davis to be intrigued with the tune and record it. And the final tune was a Miles Davis Bud Powell go. <laughs> go? Well, it was a go composition, but it was a co-composition uh, called Budo. So these four tunes comprised Miles Davis's first recording session in the studio. All right. Hope you enjoyed those uh, four tunes. We're going to continue some music now with a band that actually has the same instrumentation, but this is an entirely different sound. And the instrumentation, of course, is the same. Tenor saxophone, trumpet, piano, um, acoustic bass, and drums. But this time, this recording was done in the early 1980s. And the band was led by a wonderful drummer by the name of Lenny White, who was still around. And they, had, um, they were in the studio to record a session with uh, vocalist uh, Chaka Khan. And the band um, had such incredible chemistry that the producer went to Lenny and said, look, why don't we record a whole album of instrumental tunes? Can you put something together? And, of course, they, they did. Lenny said, well, I have a couple of original compositions, um, and the other people uh, contribute as well, and uh, we'll put something together. So without really a lot of rehearsal or anything else, um, they put together an, an instrumental album under Lenny White's name. The people involved here are all tremendous jazz stars, Freddie Hubbard on trumpet, Joe Henderson on tenor saxophone, Chick Corea on piano, and Stanley Clark on acoustic upright bass, and all led by Lenny White. We're going to hear the two Lenny White compositions. 
The first one is called El's Bop, and the second tune is called Guernica, and a very wonderful sound by this uh, band. Very contemporary and fun to listen to, so I hope you enjoy it. We begin with El's Bop.
Well, we're going to have to uh, do a little switcheroo here, and I'm, I want you to hear this recording because it's so good, and uh, we're going to um, make every attempt to bring it to you again. Obviously, the, uh, the CD um, messed up,
but uh, we do have an alternative. So if you give me uh, two seconds, we'll have this recording up for you, this, this particular tune up for you in one or two or three seconds.
<laughs> well, it did take a minute to get that tune up there. Unfortunately, the uh, the CD copy um, didn't play very well. Occasionally, this happens. So I did have the backup. It took me a little more than uh, two or three seconds, but uh, we got it on, and we heard both uh, of these um, Lenny White compositions because the band is led by drummer Lenny White, and, of course, it featured um, the incredible Freddie Hubbard on trumpet, the equally incredible Joe Henderson on tenor saxophone, and, of course, um, Lenny White is still very much with us. Hubbard and Henderson, of course, are gone, but uh, Lenny White is still with us. Chick Corea is still very much with us, and bassist Stanley Clark is still very much with us. We heard two tunes. The, uh, the first one was called Els Bop, and uh, the second one, although uh, the CD we had to stop, we uh, started it all over again uh, using the vinyl record, which I should have done in the first place. Then it wouldn't have messed up. And we heard the second tune was a, a Lenny White composition uh, called Guernica, and it sort of had a, an exotic kind of a Spanish feel to it. So I hope you enjoyed those two pieces, and uh, we got a chance to hear Joe Henderson solo twice on uh, on that. So that's always a bonus. All right, we're going to continue. Just like to remind you that you are listening to the Jazz Show. My name is Gavin Walker, and uh, before we play some music by Paul Desmond, um, I'd just like to mention a couple of really really fine websites. Uh, one of them, of course, is the website of the Coastal Jazz and Blues Society. That is, um, the website is coastaljazz.ca. And um, that is a very comprehensive website, and you get all kinds of information on there by just scanning around. You can make reservations at uh, Vancouver's prestigious and uh, leading jazz club, Frankie's. Frankie's Jazz Club, which is down on Beatty Street, right opposite BC Place. And, of course, uh, from Wednesdays through, right through to Sunday evening, they have some of the finest in uh, in jazz and jazz-related music there. And you can uh, make reservations. You can find out. You can check out the schedule and see who you would like to see, all that kind of stuff, as well as some up-and-coming events that uh, Coastal Jazz and Blues is producing. So it's a very comprehensive and very up-to-date website. So I encourage you to go on to uh, online and check out coastaljazz.ca. And, of course, another great website is the website of my good buddy, old buddy, Brian Nation, who keeps it up-to-date, and that is vancouverjazz.com. So... Coastaljazz.ca and VancouverJazz.com. And just one more thing, I'd like to mention my friend Ken Speller, who was a wonderful music teacher. He has a business called Music at Home. And if you're interested in learning how to play the flute and the clarinet, the saxophone, whatever instrument appeals to you, uh, Ken is a very, very good teacher. And he'll come to your home and teach you how to play those instruments. And uh, he's had many, many years of experience teaching. He's an extremely fine musician himself. And um, another one of his uh, 
talents is that he is an amazing repairman for musical instruments. And he doesn't charge you an arm and a leg because he has his workshop in his home. So if you do play the saxophone, the flute, or the clarinet, and you know that those instruments need upkeep, whether it's a small tweak, uh, replacing a pad, or whether it's a complete overhaul. Ken is also uh, will advise you on uh, if you're into purchasing um, musical instruments, quality ones are not cheap, and sometimes you need a little advice as to uh, which one, uh, which type, that uh, brand, all that kind of stuff. Ken is very good at all, all that. So he's a good man to know uh, if you're interested in, in performing, whether you're an amateur, professional, or student. And um, repairing those instruments, uh, again, he's an ace on that. He can be reached at 778-800-1933. That's 778-800-1933. Incidentally, he's located in the Metrotown area of Burnaby. Um, or you can reach him via email, which is kspeller, K-S-P-E-L-L-E-R, underscore 14 at yahoo.ca. kspeller, underscore 14 at yahoo.ca. Well, getting back to music, and we call this Paul Desmond's Canadian Quartet because not only was this music recorded in Toronto in 1975 at the uh, famous Bourbon Street Club in Toronto, it features an all-Canadian band, and it was one of Paul Desmond's favorites. He, um, he didn't know any of these uh, musicians until he played in Toronto and discovered that uh, Canadian musicians were as good as any and uh, even better. Uh, he fell in love with uh, musically with uh, all of these guys. And, of course, we hear the wonderful Paul Desmond on alto saxophone. We're going to hear him on a couple of tunes uh, with the great and now retired Ed Bickert on guitar, who became one of Paul Desmond's favorite musicians. On bass, the gentleman who recorded all of these proceedings and also played the bass, Don Thompson. And, of course, Don uh, spent many years here in Vancouver before departing for the States and then eventually moving to Toronto. And um, I talk to Don quite frequently, and he is, of course, one of the elder statesman now of um, music in Toronto, and of course he uh, plays the piano, the drums, he plays anything. <laughs> he's also a good trumpet player, although he's never really played that professionally, but he's an incredible bass player. That's who, what you'll hear him play on this. And on drums, another gentleman who spent many, many years here in Vancouver, Jerry Fuller, the late and wonderful Jerry Fuller on drums. We're going to hear two tunes. First one is a Paul Desmond composition dedicated to Audrey Hepburn. It's simply called Audrey. And the second tune is written by um, Jerry Mulligan, and it's entitled Line for Lions. So here then, two pieces of music by the late great voice of the alto saxophone, Paul Desmond.
some wonderful and very cool, in the best sense of the word, sounds by uh, the great voice of the alto saxophone, Paul Desmond, most most distinctive, and of course uh, being very happy to be performing with his Canadian quartet. And uh, these were recorded at uh, Bourbon Street in, in Toronto in 1975. Paul Desmond on alto saxophone, the wonderful Ed Bickert on guitar, Don Thompson on bass, and the late Jerry Fuller on drums. And we heard two tunes. The first one was dedicated to Audrey Hepburn, um, who Paul Desmond had an unrequited love affair with. And uh, amazingly enough, um, when Audrey uh, was in her... Um, in her will, she was aware of Paul Desmond's uh, composition. That he actually recorded the first version of this when he was with the Dave Brubeck Quartet way back in the mid-50s. And um, she was aware of uh, that piece of music, and she put it in her will that uh, Audrey should be played at her um, memorial service, and it was. Anyway, that's the first tune we heard, Audrey, um, for Audrey Hepburn. And the second tune was written by Jerry Mulligan, a a nice lyrical line called Line for Lions. And, of course, uh, dedicated to one of the great uh, early impresarios of jazz, Jimmy Lyons, who who started the um, Monterey Jazz Festival. And uh, Mulligan wrote this tune for him, Line for Lions. Paul Desmond and his Canadian Quartet. We have a couple of uh, messages to play for you. Just like to remind you, you are listening to The Jazz Show on CITR FM 101.9. And we broadcast live every Monday night. And uh, my name is Gavin Walker. And we're also on the web, www.citr.ca. And we shall be back in a moment right after these brief messages. The most powerful motivational speeches that I have ever heard came from people who told me I couldn't do something. (laughs) You know why? Because when they told me I couldn't do it, I was bound and determined to show them that I could. Did you know CITR has an accessibility collective? Our new collective serves to explore issues of inclusion, equity, and accessibility for people with physical and cognitive disabilities on campus and beyond. If you love making radio, listening to radio, or want to get involved for the first time, come join our collective. We include people of all abilities, experience levels, and backgrounds in the production and programming of our show. Tune in to our weekly show, All Access Pass, from 5 to 6 p.m. on Thursdays for interviews, music, news, events, and awesome dialogues. If you want to get involved, email accessibilitycollective at citr.ca. Want to know what's up at UBC? Read the UBC. 
It's only the largest student newspaper in Western Canada, and it's written and edited entirely by UBC students. The UBC is your source for on-campus news, culture, and sports. New editions come out every Monday and Thursday. For breaking news, as well as amazing videos and blogs, check out ubc.ca. Listening to CITR 101.9, broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus, located on the traditional, unceded Coast Salish territory of the Honkameenam speaking Musqueam people. We're going to turn to the Wonderful vocal stylings of Milton Nascimento. Now, he can sing um, very, very high falsetto, and, of course, he can sing in his uh, normal voice as well, and uh, he's, an, he's a virtuoso uh, singer. We're going to play some um, music, all compositions by Milton Nascimento, um, who's from Brazil, of course, and in conjunction with saxophonist Wayne Shorter, who was heard on uh, tenor and soprano saxophone. And Herbie Hancock is here, and a whole bunch of other people uh, as well. We're not going to get into all the names and, and, and so on and so forth. But, uh, um, oh, I will mention Raul de Souza on trombone uh, as well. And um, as I said, Wayne Shorter... Um, Herbie Hancock, and uh, some other people, Erto Moriera on percussion, and so on and so forth. But the, the voice and the compositions of Milton Nascimento. These are from two recordings. We're going to hear two pieces from a, a Wayne Shorter album called Native Dancer, and we're going to hear two pieces from a Milton Nascimento album called simply Milton. And uh, the first piece of music is called The Miracle of the Fishes. The second piece of music is called From the Lonely Afternoons. And the third piece of music is called Saídas e Bandieras, Exits and Flags. And the final piece is called Os Povos, which, of course, in English is The People. So here, then, four compositions by the great Milton Nascimento with Wayne Shorter, Herbie Hancock, Erto Moriera, etc. Eu vejo esses peixes se for de coração. Eu vejo essas latas e dor de coração. A natureza. Falam colorido De crianças coloridas De um gênio Televisor E no andor de nossos novos santos O sinal de velhos tempos Morte, morte Morte ao amor Eles não falam Do mar e dos peixes Nem deixam ver A moça pura canção Nem ver nascer a 
dessa coisa que não dá mais pé O que vocês fariam pra sair dessa maré? O que era sonho vira terra Quem vai ser o primeiro a me responder? Sair dessa cidade, ter a vida onde ela é Subir novas montanhas, diamantes procurar No fim da estrada e da poeira com seus frutos me alimentar 
Portão de ouro, aldeia morta, solidão. Meu povo, meu povo, aldeia morta, cadeado, That was some music by the great Brazilian singer Milton Nascimento in conjunction with a whole bunch of people, including Wayne Shorter on soprano and tenor saxophones, um, Raul de Souza on trombone, Herbie Hancock on um, piano, and a whole bunch of other folks, including... Um, uh, Erto Mordiera on uh, on percussion, 
and we heard four Milton Nascimento compositions, and of course uh, his incredible voice, which which goes way up to you know, falsetto, and and uh, and then his his natural deep rich uh, voice, and of course uh, the beautiful language of um, Brazil, of course, which is Portuguese, and uh, we heard. Um, as I said, uh, four compositions by Milton Nascimento. Uh, the first one was called Miracle of the Fishes. The second tune was called From the Lonely Afternoons. Uh, tune number three was entitled Saídas y Bandieras, Exits and Flags. And the final tune was, was called Os Povos, The People. Milton Nascimento, something a little different and uh, still with a, a great deal of uh, creative jazz feeling as well. We're going to go back in time now and play two recording sessions by J.J. Johnson, the great trombonist, and he was a pioneer of modern jazz trombone. We're going to hear a very early session done in 1946 these are one of the, some of the earliest uh, modern jazz records. They were done for Savoy Records. And this was recorded June 26, 1946. We're going to hear the four tunes that J.J. Uh, recorded with his quintet with um, a gentleman who became much more famous on baritone saxophone, but here he is on his first instrument, Cecil Payne on alto saxophone. And the incredible Bud Powell on piano. Now, he has some very short solos on here, but he plays so beautifully and so lucidly on, on here. And, of course, Bud Powell, one of the great pioneers of modern jazz as well, uh, as much a virtuoso as Charlie Parker or Dizzy Gillespie, Bud Powell was right there. And you'll hear it on these recordings. Leonard Gaskin is the bass player and the great Max Roach on drums. We're going to hear... Three compositions by J.J. Johnson and one by Max Roach. So we begin with the J.J. Johnson composition called Jaybird. Uh, and then the second tune is a very clever little piece written by Max Roach called Cop and the Bop. And tune number three is entitled J.J. And tune number four is called Mad Bebop. And all of this was recorded in 1946. J.J. Johnson and his quintet. Thank you. 
Thank you.
That music was from uh, 1946, a long time ago. And that was some of the uh, earliest recordings, or early recordings at least, of uh, modern jazz. As it sounded back then, a lot of people thought that was pretty strange music. And, of course, we listen to it with our ears today, and it's, uh, it's just neat music. <laughs> Not strange at all. J.J. Johnson, one of the pioneers of modern jazz on trombone, leading Cecil Payne on alto saxophone. Cecil is better known as a baritone saxophonist, but alto was his first instrument, and he's here on that instrument on this recording. The great Bud Powell on piano, Leonard Gaskin on bass, and the equally great Max Roach on drums. And, of course, Johnson, Powell, and Roach, pioneers of modern jazz. The first tune was a J.J. Johnson composition called Jaybird. The second was a Max Roach composition called Cop and the Bop. And finally, two J.J. Johnson compositions. J.J. was tune number three, and Mad Bebop was tune number four. Now we're going to move a few years on to 1949 for Savoy Records, May 11th to be exact. And here's another quintet put together by J.J. Johnson. Mr. Johnson on trombone with a very young, still a teenager, Sonny Rollins on tenor saxophone. John Lewis on piano, who went on to lead the modern jazz quartet. Gene Ramey on bass from Kansas City. And the great Shadow Wilson on drums. And we're going to hear... Sonny Rollins' very first recorded composition, and this was called Autobahn. And it's not named after the guy that uh, painted birds, but it's named after the ballroom in Harlem called the Autobahn Ballroom. And that's where Sonny Rollins played some of his very first gigs as a very young man. So he um, named the tune after the Autobahn Ballroom. That's the first tune. And the second tune is a standard tune uh, with a fine arrangement by J.J. Johnson, tune by Dorothy Fields and Jimmy McHugh called Don't Blame Me, standard. And then another Rollins composition, a blues, called Goof Square. And the final tune is written by the leader, J.J. Johnson, is called B.J. So here then, for the four tunes recorded for Savoy, May 11th, 1949, the J.J. Johnson Quintet with the uh, early Sonny Rollins on tenor saxophone. Thank you. 
1949. That was a session, four tunes, recorded for Savoy Records by J.J. Johnson, the trombonist, the great pioneering modern jazz trombonist, with a very young teenage, Sonny Rollins on tenor saxophone, John Lewis on piano, Gene Ramey on bass, and Shadow Wilson on drums. And we heard four compositions, two by Sonny Rollins. These were his first recorded compositions. The first one uh, was tune number one called Autobahn, named after the famous Harlem Ballroom. And um, that was the first tune. Second tune was a standard tune and a nice arrangement by J.J. Johnson of Don't Blame Me. And then another Sonny Rollins composition, this time a, a blues called Goof Square. And the final tune was uh, an up-tempo thing by J.J. Johnson called B.J. J.J. Johnson, two early recording sessions by this uh, great trombonist, one from 1946 and one from 1949. Incidentally, our jazz feature next week, although it won't be on the 23rd of September, um, which, of course, is the... uh, solstice day it's also john coltrane's birthday so to celebrate um john coltrane's birthday anniversary our jazz feature next week will be a classic one of john coltrane's own favorite albums and of course it's the famous blue note album that he did called blue train uh, with an amazing band with uh, a young teenage lee morgan on trumpet Curtis Fuller on trombone, Philly Joe Jones on drums, and uh, Paul Chambers on bass, and Kenny Drew on piano. Uh, Absolutely amazing uh, sextet, and of course this turned out to be a classic recording, Blue Train. We're going to hear that album in its entirety next week on the jazz feature as a tribute to the great John William Coltrane. We're going to close the show this evening with a long piece of music written by pianist Cedar Walton. And it's, um, this is a band called Eastern Rebellion, which was led by Cedar Walton on piano. And my old friend, the late, great, and wonderful Bob Berg on tenor saxophone, Sam Jones on bass, and Billy Higgins on drums. And uh, this is a Cedar Walton composition. It has various properties and movements and all that kind of stuff. Even though it's, uh, well, I guess it's Tuesday morning now. But uh, this is called The Sunday Suite. Cedar Walton, Bob Berg, and company.
Yes, that was the Sunday Suite, written by Cedar Walton and played by his band Eastern Rebellion, which featured, of course, Cedar Walton on piano and the late and great Bob Berg on tenor saxophone, Sam Jones on bass, and Billy Higgins on drums. The Sunday Suite. That's it for the jazz show this evening. And we'd like to uh, thank you very much for uh, being out there and lending us your ears. And we hope that your ears were pleased by um, some of the sounds you heard this evening. Next week, our jazz feature, we open the show with a tribute to John Coltrane and one of his own favorite albums. John Coltrane's birthday, of course, is September 23rd, and um, the jazz show does not fall on September 23rd, but we'll still celebrate Coltrane's birthday and um, birthday anniversary. And we'll be featuring his great album, Blue Train, his album for Blue Note Records, and of course that's a true classic. All right, that's it. Once again, thank you very much for being out there this evening. And on behalf of myself, Gavin Walker, and CITR FM 101.9, broadcasting from the University of British Columbia on unceded Musqueam territory. And of course, we're also on the web, www.citr.ca. We'll see you in seven days' time. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you.